It's an amazing blessing and privilege for us this morning to be able to open our Bibles and to read a letter that came from the hand of Paul. In Paul's day as a Roman colony and capital of the Roman region known as Achaia, Corinth was an important, vibrant and influential centre of commerce. Even then, it was about 2,000 years old as a site of human habitation, but much of it had been destroyed by the Romans early in their occupation of the area in 146 BC. But Julius Caesar, recognising how significant a location it was, he decided to rebuild Corinth and in BC 44 the building work began. Its location is a considerable strength. If you're not familiar with uh, the geography, here's something to help you. In southern Greece, there's a, a land mass that's a little bit smaller than Wales, and it's called the Peloponnese Peninsula. It's connected to mainland Greece by a narrow bridge of land, which is known as an isthmus. Isthmus is Greek for neck. It looks like a, a head attached by a neck. And the isthmus is about four miles wide. And if it wasn't for that little strip of land, it would be an island. Now, Corinth was situated at this connecting point. Uh, it sat beneath a 1,900-foot-high hill called Acrocorinth. And there were two ports, the next picture will just zoom in a little bit for us and you can see either side of that isthmus there are two ports and that makes this area a central hub for trade and so they can receive goods both from the east and from the west and instead of sailing the 200 miles around that peninsula often through seas which were very dangerous goods would be transferred over land between the two ports it saved an awful lot of time and it was much safer indeed sometimes they even dragged the boats out of the water and took them overland and pushed them back into the sea on the other side and the Romans built a purpose-built stone paved road you might recall they were pretty good at that kind of thing many years later in the 19th century the French would accomplish something which Nero had wanted to begin but never got around to, and that was build a canal across. And uh, the French did that, and it was opened in 1893. And a modern aerial day picture of the isthmus allows you to make out the canal running across the centre. So I guess they have now made it an island, actually. But it wasn't in Paul's day. And a road ran through Corinth, connecting this southern area to the north. And, of course, it would carry goods of every conceivable type. So it was a vibrant, cosmopolitan, wealthy, multicultural city and port. Liverpool has something in common with it, I guess. It's estimated that at its peak, Corinth probably had a, a population of about 750,000 people. It was a big deal. It was home to many wealthy businessmen. It was a familiar port of call to thousands of seafarers. It was a pivotal stronghold in the Roman Empire. 
And because of all that, it would also have had a very large population of slaves. It was a city renowned for culture. It was a place of learning, a place of philosophy, a place of entertainment. The biannual Isthmian Games rivaled the Olympics. Uh, Olympia also being located on this same peninsula to the southwest. Corinth was also a centre of pagan worship and great immorality. In many ways, religious life was dominated by a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. And there were reputed to be a thousand temple prostitutes who plied their trade in the city. And it was here in Corinth that the Apostle Paul arrived on his second missionary journey in the year AD 50, as we saw recorded in Acts chapter 18. And during an 18-month stay there, his evangelizing resulted in the establishing of a Christian church. Here it is that he met Aquila and Priscilla, and he was joined by Silas and Timothy. He went to the synagogue every Sabbath day. That was his routine. And he reasoned with both Jews and Greeks. We saw in that reading from Acts 18 that very soon, actually, the Jews rejected him and opposed him. There'll always be rejection and discouragement in gospel work, even for the apostles. But he was taken in by a man named Justus, because God also always provides for his people. And Paul had the joy of seeing the whole household of Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, trusting in Christ. Uh, and we read there in Acts chapter 18 that the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, don't be afraid, speak, don't keep silent, don't let this opposition put you off, I'm with you, no one will attack you to hurt you. Well, not on this occasion maybe, but you'd know plenty of that. For I have many people in this city. And that was how the church was established there. Now of all the churches that Paul founded, the church at Corinth was perhaps the most problematic. And given the nature of the city and the diverse backgrounds that people came from, perhaps that's not too much of a surprise. And Paul was concerned to help the church in any way he could and we learn of various points of contact that Paul had following that first visit. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, in chapters 5 and 9, and then in 2 Corinthians, in chapters 2 and 7, we read of at least two other letters which aren't recorded in the Bible, which were sent from Paul to the church, and at least one letter that was sent from the church to Paul. We know from 1 Corinthians 16 that some of the believers from Corinth visited Paul in Ephesus. It was very clear that all kinds of problems and tensions were developing in the Corinthian church. And his writing of the letter which we call 1 Corinthians, that was written in AD 55, that was a major response by Paul to some of those issues that he was aware of. The precise time scale of all of these points of contact is not always easy to piece together exactly. We know that both Timothy and Titus made visits to the church in Corinth and took reports back to Paul to keep him up to date. 2 Corinthians 16 tells us that sometime before this letter, 
Paul had made a return visit to them. And about two years after he wrote 1 Corinthians, this letter of 2 Corinthians, as it is in our Bibles, was written. Paul was planning a gospel journey, another one. Paul's plan was to take the gospel further west still into Europe, into Spain. And he wrote this letter ahead of that planned trip. Now, one of the many problems in the Corinthian church was that there were other voices that the members of that church were listening to. And they were allowing these individuals to influence them in such a way that they were starting to cast doubt on Paul's ministry and on Paul's authority. The Corinthians had allowed themselves to be swayed by impressive personalities. Most of us have that weakness. That is a weakness, you know, to be swayed by a personality purely on the basis of the personality. It's a weakness to do that. We conclude that someone must be good or right for the job on the basis of their personality and allow, we allow that to override other important considerations that also ought to be taken into consideration. If someone is a good orator, there's a danger that we conclude that therefore makes them a good preacher and that their message must be of greater importance than a less able speaker. Don't make that mistake. A good preacher can be a good orator. But it doesn't follow that simply being a good orator makes you a good preacher. There's a saying in the world of aircraft design. If it looks right, it probably is. Sometimes that's been true. But the flaws in that philosophy have often proved extremely costly, both financially and in human life. Because just because something looks right is not always a guarantee that it is right, is it? The Corinthians were making that mistake with some of the people who were coming amongst them. In churches, it's very easy to be carried along by effervescent personalities. But some churches have sometimes discovered too late that they were actually being led astray by that personality. And they were so busy looking on in admiration, they hadn't realised just how far adrift the ship had gone. The Corinthians had come across other preachers much easier on the eye, much more pleasing to the ear than puny little Paul. Because physically, as a man, he really wasn't much to look at. And there were much better sounding preachers than he when it simply came to oratory. The Corinthians had come across other preachers more palatable with a more attractive message than that that was preached by Paul. And you see, Paul's great concern is that in abandoning him, they will abandon the gospel that he preached. That's his big concern. Paul knows only too well his physical limitations and his weaknesses. But he is nevertheless absolutely convinced that the message that he preached the truths that he taught are the one 
true gospel of Christ. And he knows this because he received it personally and directly from Christ. And he also knows that his lifestyle in the ministry commended him to the church. That's something we'll be considering this evening when he talks about suffering. And so in much of this letter, Paul is defending his ministry. Because for Paul to defend his ministry, that is to defend the message that he preached. And that is to defend the Jesus who he proclaimed. Just because someone uses Christ's name, that's not a guarantee that they're faithfully preaching the Jesus of the Bible. But Paul knew he was. There were other preachers coming into Corinth. They were using the name Jesus, but they weren't faithful men like Paul was. And so Paul writes this second letter. And that's probably sufficient background for us to have some idea as to the kind of issues that Paul is going to be looking at in the letter that he writes. And it's right that we start to get to grip with it. Remember that this is a letter. So in one sense, it's meant to be read right through from beginning to end. It's true, actually. It doesn't quite flow like 1 Corinthians does. It seems to be a little bit more staccato going from one issue to another. But it's actually meant to be read right through. And I would actually encourage you to try doing that. Just sit down and read it. It won't take you that long. Read it. In fact, do it several times. And that will help you to to pick up some of the big themes that Paul is addressing of course it's more than just a letter it's a letter that was inspired by God and it's recorded for us as scripture and so on that basis it also deserves to be poured over and chewed over slowly and deeply because if every word in this letter is the word of God which it is then every word is important And every word carries great weight and great authority. So read it right through like a letter. But also take time to consider it carefully. Well, let's begin to look at this letter this morning. And we'll just look at the opening greeting that Paul gives in verses 1 and 2. And let's just be clear this morning who it's from, who it's to, and what Paul's intent is in writing it. So first of all, who it's from. Well, the fire-breathing, Christian-hating Saul of Tarsus, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the golden boy of the Jewish religious establishment, is writing to a Christian church that he founded. How wonderful is that? Just pause and think about that. Saul of Tarsus, that man, writing to this church that he founded. This man who God took hold of on the Damascus road and there and then revealed himself to Saul, changed him forever and set him aside for a very special and unique place and role within the Christian church. The disciples of Jesus, we heard about them just before with the children, the the 12 minus 1 made up to 12 again when Matthias was appointed to replace Judas Iscariot, uh, they became known as apostles. Now their qualifications were very specific. They were personally chosen and appointed by Christ, literally by Christ, 
not by means of a human mediator, hence the drawing of lots in the choosing of Matthias after prayer. So they were personally appointed by Christ because he called and chose them and they were witnesses of Christ risen from the dead. Eyewitnesses. So theirs is a unique role and theirs is a role that can never be repeated because there are no men or women around today who fill those qualifications. Now to them, at least in the early years of the church, to them were given miraculous spiritual gifts and those gifts would authenticate their authority to teach and rule the church. And to them, God revealed further truths and doctrine. Many of those things were written down and they were regarded as being on an equal footing with Old Testament scripture and they brought the whole canon of scripture to completion in other words those men it was through those men that the new testament was written and the bible was completed they laid down the foundation of the church which once done was done and didn't need to be repeated and so they were the only apostles the church has ever had they're the only apostles the church has ever needed with one exception, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Not an apostle of the church, interestingly, an apostle of Christ. The apostle born out of due time, as he called himself, as not being one of the original twelve. The least of the apostles, as he called himself, not being one of the original twelve. The apostle whom God would primarily use to take the gospel to the Gentile world. We were commenting in our elders meeting last week how even before Paul knew anything about it, as Saul of Tarsus, God was kind of using him as a man to take the gospel into the Gentile world because it was his persecution that drove, drove the Jews out of Jerusalem and they took the gospel with them wherever they went. And he actually knew nothing about it at that point. I hope you take the gospel wherever you go, like the Old Test- those New Testament believers did. But Paul, you see, he had a very unique and special encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Even the Apostle Paul finds it difficult to put into words exactly what it was that took place. But Christ met with Paul in a way that he's never met with any Christian since. No one had an encounter with Christ like Paul did. It was unique because... Christ was appointing him to be the 13th apostle. And Christ not only appointed Paul, he equipped him and set him aside to be this great missionary of the early church from Jerusalem. And so Paul had a very special commission and a very special authority as an apostle. And that means that the things that he's teaching... The things that he's saying about the Lord Jesus Christ are so important for us to listen to. And the danger in the Corinthian church is that they're moving away from it. And that's his real concern. It's not for himself so much as the fact that they're in danger of drifting away from the message that he's brought them. We see of Paul that he he wasn't self-appointed. The Bible actually doesn't entertain self-appointment 
people are appointed. Now in the New Testament days and in the church today, people are appointed either by de- directly by Christ, as was the case of the apostles, or indirectly by means of others in the church. We see exactly the same in the Old Testament. God, God isn't different in the two Testaments. He's exactly the same. In the Old Testament, there are some who God directly himself calls and appoints. Abraham, Samuel, Moses, Gideon. Sometimes he called and appointed people by means of angels as messengers. He also did that at the beginning of the New Testament, didn't he? In the Nativity story. He also uses human instruments to call and appoint people. As he used Samuel to set aside David as Israel's future king. What you don't find is self-appointment. Which is why churches, for example, choose and set aside elders and deacons. Elders and deacons don't appoint themselves. And so we see that Paul's appointment can only be, as he says, according to God's will. Because Christ has done it. Timothy, on the other hand, Timothy gets a mention. What a good and gifted and special man he is in God's providences. But he cannot be referred to as an apostle, because he isn't. He's a brother. He's a brother. Not that that is less special, but it's just different. At various points in his letter, Paul will draw out distinctions between himself as a true apostle of Christ and others who are self-appointed impostors. The issue of apostolic authority is what's important for us to grasp here this morning. As we have this letter open in front of us, we have to remember who it's come from. You have to remember those parts of the Bible where you might find it's just as if the Bible's just recalling stories and events. It's just bringing us facts of history. It's still God who's speaking. It's not a man filling in the gaps. I wonder, do you sometimes find yourself reading the Bible and you come across a particular portion of it and you find yourself thinking, what is the point of this? Do remember, you're not questioning some ancient scribe who didn't know what he was doing. You're not questioning some Bible translator who should have known better than to include it. You're actually questioning the wisdom of God who personally directed, breathed the words into one of his appointed ones that they might write it down for you, be it a New Testament apostle or an Old Testament prophet. And this is Christ speaking directly through Paul to you, to me, to us as a church, because this is one of Christ's apostles speaking. This is what gives Paul and the things that he says far greater weight than anything I might have to say. This is why in preaching, the purpose is not for me to bring my own thoughts or revelations, but to open up and explain what God has already said in his word through his appointed spokesman. There's a sense of call. There's a sense, of course, in which I could call myself an appointed spokesman. There's a sense in which that's true. Indeed, you could, whenever you speak to someone about God or about Christ, 
But we are in a completely different category of spokesmen compared to the apostles and the prophets who went before them. And this is who it's from. So we really do need to sit up and take notice and drink this letter in. And who's it to? Well, of course, the letter has an immediate audience and application. The church in Corinth. But because of all that we've just realised about Paul as an apostle, and because he himself opens up the scope of the letter wider than just the church in Corinth, he says, make sure it's read to all the churches in that region, and certainly beyond. And here we are today, a few thousand miles away from Corinth, but we have it in our hand for us to read. And what, a, what a great thing it is that, we, that we've got this, that is directed to us... We are prone to all the same mistakes and errors that were being made in the church in Corinth. And so this letter is for us, as much as it ever was for them. We see that whilst Christ has one universal church, which will one day be with him in eternity forever, well, that'd be glorious, but he has local churches. There's a church in Corinth. The Greek word he uses, ecclesia, one way of describing that is assembly, a gathering together, a drawing together. That's more literal in meaning. But a church, that's what we are. That's, that's what he calls them, isn't it, it there in, in the introduction that he gives to them. Having stated very clearly who the letter is coming from, which is such a helpful thing in those days to state right at the start where the letter comes from to the church at Corinth with all the saints who are in Achaia. That's what we are. An assembly of saints in a particular place, understanding that there are other saints out there in their particular assembly. Saints. God's called out ones, called out from spiritual darkness and into light, called from death to life, called from conforming to all the patterns of the sinful world in which we live to instead being transformed by the renewing of our minds through God's spirit and word. That renewing, of course, not something that we have to try to do to ourselves. It is the work of God's grace in us to renew us by his spirit. Called from condemnation to salvation. Called to Christ and set apart to Christ. Holy ones. To live for Christ. To have their identity now in Christ. Saints. That word draws together all those kinds of thoughts. And all such saints, all such saved ones, are to be part of a local assembly. God draws us together into local churches. We are to be an immediate and a tangible expression of the kingdom of God and of the body of Christ. And with that comes all the advantages and privileges and responsibilities that come with it. They are the church of God in Corinth, as we are here. We're not just a group of people who happen to share similar things in common. We are God's doing. 
Now that's true of us individually as believers. You are God's workmanship as a Christian believer. But it's also true of us as an assembly of believers. This, you, are God's doing. God's possession. For his purposes and for his glory. A church of saints. Wow. What privilege and blessing from God. And because they are the church of God, because they are the church of God, God must be at the centre of everything. God must be at the centre of your thinking. God must be at the centre of your worship. He should be the reason why you're here this morning. He should be the one you've come to meet with primarily. This service is not about you. It's not about me. It isn't even, first and foremost, for you. Now, there are things in gathering that God has for us. But, first and foremost, it's about him and it's for him. Because we are his. Everything that happens here first is for him. That he might have the proper place in our lives, in our thoughts, in our affections, in our desires. Only then, you see, will we get from our gathering all the blessings that God intends as a means of grace to us. When we get God in his right place is when the blessing comes. Because we're not just a church. We're the church of God at Belvedere Road. Just two words. Of God. What a difference that makes. And like those who made up the Corinthian church... Let's be honest about this. We are a right bunch of messed up people with all kinds of baggage and garbage and backgrounds and personalities and likes and dislikes and prejudice and opinions and how on earth are we going to get on with each other? That was the problem in Corinth. They're no different to us. And on what basis are we ever going to come to any agreement on things? On what basis are we ever going to make decisions together? On what basis are we ever going to live in unity together? They're all the kinds of difficulties the Corinthians were having. And so how blessed we are to have this letter to help us. It's to a church just like us. We need it as much as they did. And then just to close a little more briefly. What was Paul's intent What's his intent? Now, many of you who are familiar with the Bible, you'll recognise Paul's signature greeting as he pulls together these two phrases that they were in common use amongst the Greek and Jewish cultures. They were heard on the streets every day. Grace to you and peace. And he pulls them together. Peace is what's needed 
Grace is how it's achieved. The world seeks peace. But it will never have it until it learns grace. And the problem with the sinful heart is that grace is one of the things you're least likely to ever come across in a sinful heart. Everyone recognises the goodness of grace when they see it. But our proud and selfish hearts make it so, so hard for us to do grace, to be gracious to others. It's easy to be nice to people who are nice back. That's not grace. That's returning one good deed for another. Jesus said even sinners do that. That's dependent upon either a good deed having been done to you first or anticipating that it will be done to you after. That's not grace. To be humble, to be kind, to be considerate to those who you know will despise you in return. That's grace. That's grace. Because wasn't that Christ? Isn't that still Christ? Weren't you once that person who despised him? Did he not still show you grace? Are you still that person despising Christ? Today is still a day of grace. The day is coming when those days will be over though. But today is a day when you can know God's grace. Will you not receive it? Grace and peace to you from God. We, we can't generate this ourselves. It's from God, just as well. From God, you deserve nothing, but you'll receive it anyway. Because God is kind and God is gracious. There's grace in salvation. Oh, what grace God has shown to sinners. Let me ask you, do you know what it is to be at peace with God because of the grace that he's shown you in the Lord Jesus Christ? Out of his grace, God reconciles sinners to himself. Out of his grace, God makes sinners to be at peace. To be at peace with himself through all that Christ has done as Saviour and Lord. And his abundant grace, as we sang earlier, just keeps on giving. And as we'll see this evening, how thankful we need to be that that is the case. Because how we're going to continue to need God's grace. And Paul's thinking, you troublesome Corinthians, you're so slow to learn, but there is grace. There is still grace that you might be at peace. Because it comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll think a little bit more about that this evening too. There's a God of all grace who longs for you to experience it and to know it and in knowing it to be at peace. Paul has nothing but love for this church and for all believers. Oh, that each one of us were more like Paul. God has nothing but love for this church with all its faults and all its errors. And God is overflowing as a source of grace to them that they might again be at peace. At peace with him. At peace within yourself. And at peace with one another. 
It's only found through God. And as we study this letter together, let us pray that God's grace and peace may be known to us, be established in us, and flow out from us into all the world.